0: Well, good morning, everybody. Once again, it's great to see all of you. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Daniel chapter 4, uh, if you're following along in one of the Bibles in the seats, it's on page 616. Daniel chapter 4. Wasn't that an incredible song that we just sang? That was an awesome song. We have great music here. Love that song. Daniel chapter 4 is where we are. We are beginning a new series today. Uh, the, the series has kind of an interesting title. It's called Thank God or Hashtag Thank God. And actually, this series got got me into trouble a few weeks ago. I was talking with some people on staff, and we were talking about upcoming weekends and stuff, and I said, yeah, in a few weeks, we begin a new series, Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) And their eyes got real big, and I realized, oh, they think that, like, maybe I don't like our current series, and I'm grateful that we're starting a new series. No, the name of the series is Thank God. So this may get us into trouble, but it's a great name for a series because ultimately, Uh, What this series is about is it's about gratitude. It's about Thanksgiving. And every time we gather together in this month of Thanksgiving, we're going to be talking about things that we have to be grateful for. And today we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to do something that I I actually do a lot, but it's going to seem a little bit different this time. I'm going to read through the whole passage. Which I do a lot ahead of time, but uh, the reason it's going to seem different is this is actually a really long passage. It's 37 verses, so it's going to take me a few minutes to get through. But I really think it's important to kind of get a lay of the land before we begin this message. And so uh, we're going to put the words on the screen there, and I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. And remember, this is God's Word, so it's the most important thing that I will say today. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what we read. King Nebuchadnezzar. To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace. I was contented and I was prosperous, but I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. By the way, he's called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. "'I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, "'I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you "'and no mystery is too difficult for you. "'Here is my dream, interpret it for me. "'These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. "'I looked, and there before me was a tree "'in the middle of the land. "'Its height was enormous.' The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. And the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, "'Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches.'" But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times, likely seven years, pass for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19, then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. But Daniel answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze and the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that God has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox seven times. Seven years will pass for you until you acknowledge that the most highest sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleased with the powers of heaven, likely angels, and the peoples of this earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Father God, we, uh, we just come here today, God, and we just thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you uh, for the, the record that you have left of your people and how you have interacted with uh, all the different types of people here on this earth, Father. And God, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit that inspired this word, Lord, that he would speak to us here today, God, that the lessons you want us to learn uh, from this passage about the season we're in right now, God, that these would become so clear, Father, And that ultimately, God, we would leave here with a different perspective of you, a different perspective of what is going on as a result of your word. And so, Father, we give this time over to you, and we ask that you be pleased in and through it. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, uh, I kind of feel the need to sort of uh, set aside the formalities, I guess you could say, and just kind of come out and state the obvious. Uh, We are living in crazy times, are we not? We are living in absolutely crazy times. In fact, I know we're not a church that that does the amen thing a lot, though I already heard one, but I kind of feel like that statement deserves an amen. We are living in crazy times. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, first of all, I can't let the weekend pass without saying this. First of all, the Cubs won the World Series. Are you kidding me? After 108 years of drought, the Cubs won the World Series. That itself is evidence that we are living in crazy times. But by far, uh, the, the craziest thing that is going on around us right now is this current political season. You know, if you were to tell me, I remember, I, I, I taught the weekend after the last election and uh, presidential election four years ago. And if you were to tell me four years later, I'd be teaching the weekend before the next presidential election and that we would be having running for president, the two candidates we have, going through what they're going through, our nation going through what they're go- it's going through, I would have told you you were absolutely crazy. And yet, here we are. We are living in crazy times. And I speak here today, and it's kind of an odd feeling, because I really just don't have any idea what's going to happen on Tuesday. I feel like in recent elections, we've kind of had a sense, maybe at times we've hoped that it would be something different, but we've kind of had a sense of where things are going, but I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen on Tuesday. And that adds to the craziness, and that adds to the uncertainty. And it's taking its toll, isn't it? I, I don't know if you saw the LA Times on Friday But they uh, wrote an article about what is being referred to as election stress disorder. Have you heard about that? Election stress disorder. It's actually a recognized thing. Therapists are talking about people coming in, and these people are explaining that they're having trouble sleeping. They're having trouble eating. They're having trouble in relationships, all because of this current election. In fact, is that light doing something weird there? Don't know what that means. But... uh, But uh, this, uh, it's even gotten so crazy, this is true, I read an article, there's a hospital in New York that they had to put up this sign, it says, due to the fact that we have patients with heart conditions, we cannot allow political discussion in our hospital. So we are living in crazy times. And if I wanted to, I could spend the next 35 minutes talking about how crazy things are, and that would probably make for a pretty entertaining message, there's more than enough material to fill 35 minutes, but I'm not going to do that here today. Instead, what I want to do is I actually want to give us a perspective that we Christians can have as we head into this week and as we head into the months and the years that follow. And all of this is going to be done in the context of this new series that we've started, Thank God, which, as I said, is all about gratitude. It's all about thankfulness. And uh, the Bible, men and women, the Bible has quite a bit to say about gratitude and thankfulness. In fact, kind of the theme verse for this series is a verse in the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says the following. He says simply, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now think about that just for a second. If, if we are to give thanks in all circumstances, then what Paul is telling us is that no matter what happens on Tuesday we can be a grateful people. Really grateful with a President Trump, grateful with a President Clinton, absolutely we can be. And today I wanna to show you what we can be grateful for. And in order to do that, I brought you to this passage in Daniel chapter four. And listen to me, as we read it, you will you, you see this and I'll be the first to admit to you, this is a very strange passage. It's a very weird passage in our Bible. But believe it or not, when I knew I was gonna teach the weekend before the election, immediately I knew I wanted to teach on this passage. And the reason why is because even though this was written 2,500 years ago, I believe it speaks directly to what is going on here today. Uh, The Israelites to whom this passage was originally directed, the Israelites themselves, were also living in a crazy time. They were living in a dark time. Those of you who know your Bible know that right before the the events of the book of Daniel take place, the Israelites had, had almost been wiped off the map as a nation. Because of their disobedience, God allowed a foreign nation, the Babylonians, the strongest, most powerful nation at the time, he allowed them to invade the land of Israel. They basically burned Israel to the ground, and they took several Israelites captive, and they forced them to leave the land of Israel, and in a time that came to be known in the Bible as the exile, they forced them to live in Babylon, they forced them to live under a foreign government with a foreign king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who's talked about quite a bit in this particular passage. And Nebuchadnezzar did not believe in the God of the Bible. He was a pagan king, and at times he seemed very opposed to the Jewish God, to the God of the Bible. And so it was a crazy time. It was a dark time, but not all was lost. God, in his wisdom, allowed four Jewish men, four Israelite men, to gain special favor with King Nebuchadnezzar. And they actually became King Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted advisors. And one of those men was a man by the name of Daniel. And he is the author of this particular book. And when Daniel chapter 4 opens, scholars tell us that we're probably about 30 years into Daniel living in Babylon. Which means that he has been Nebuchadnezzar's advisor for around 30 years. And it's 30 years in Daniel's service to King Nebuchadnezzar that God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And if you're paying attention as we read, you would have seen that this dream has as its center a tree. And at the beginning of this dream, this tree is described as being very prosperous. Trees in that time were a symbol of prosperity. This tree is described as being especially prosperous. We're told that it reaches high to the heavens. It has branches that provide shade for the animals underneath. It provides food to everybody around it. So it's a very strong, very prosperous tree. But then we're told that something happens. Nebuchadnezzar sees a messenger. Some of your Bibles a watchman. It's just a code word for an angel. An angel who comes down from heaven. And he announces that this tree needs to be cut down, leaving only its stump. And not only that, but there's also this talk of this individual, this man who begins to act like an animal. He begins to eat grass like an ox, we're told. He begins to behave like an animal. And this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And in verse 5, we see the reaction that Nebuchadnezzar has to this dream, and we're told that he's terrified. Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is not a good dream, but he doesn't yet know what it means. And so he gets together some of his advisors, his magicians, the the, the astrologer of that day, the the supposed wise men of that day, and he asks them to interpret this dream, and we're told none is able to do that. So Nebuchadnezzar then turns to the Israelite. He turns to Daniel, who has been in his service, as we said, for 30 years, and he tells Daniel this dream and asks him to interpret it. And I want to pick it up here again in verse 19 of this passage, because I want to see Daniel's reaction when he hears this dream. Verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed. Probably a better translation for that word is astounded. He was greatly astounded for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Daniel, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. But Daniel answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. And what we see there is that Daniel has the same reaction to this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And that is that this dream terrifies him. He knows That it's not a good dream. But why is it so bad? Well, we find out as we continue on. Daniel is able to give the interpretation for this particular dream. And what we learn is that the tree in this dream, it symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar. And the fact that the tree is going to be cut down uh, tells us what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He is going to be cut down. And really what Daniel says is Nebuchadnezzar is going to go crazy. That this person that Nebuchadnezzar saw that begins to act like an animal, that is Nebuchadnezzar. And what's going to happen is Nebuchadnezzar is going to begin to act like an animal. He's going to eat grass like an ox. He's going to be drenched with the dew of heaven, which means that he's not going to sleep in the palace. He's going to sleep outside with the animals so that when he wakes up every morning, he's going to be drenched with dew just like the animals. And we're told that this is going to happen until, Dan- until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God is the true king. This is going to happen until Nebuchadnezzar begins to believe in the true God and admit his power and his might and his majesty. And so ultimately, this is a dream of judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. But there does seem to be kind of a ray of hope because apparently this is not entirely set in stone. And that's what we see in verse 27. Right after interpreting this dream, Daniel gives this advice to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. And really what Daniel, what God is doing here is he's giving Nebuchadnezzar a way out. And the impression that we get is if that day Nebuchadnezzar were to acknowledge the greatness of God and begin doing what is right, this judgment would not not come upon him. But Nebuchadnezzar does not listen to Daniel. Look with me at verse 29 now. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty?" And we're told that a year passes, and Nebuchadnezzar is found a year later walking on the roof of his palace, and he's surveying his kingdom. And you have to understand, as I said, at this time, Babylon was the greatest, most powerful nation on this earth, and that's largely because of Nebuchadnezzar. Historians look very highly upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was apparently a very effective leader. He led Babylon to a time of peace and prosperity, and he actually instituted one of the greatest building projects any nation has ever seen. In fact, some of you know this, uh, but one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, we'll put an artist's depiction of it on the screen, that was actually located in Babylon, and scholars believe it was probably built by Nebuchadnezzar. The legend has it that Nebuchadnezzar's wife one day came up to Nebuchadnezzar and said, I miss the mountains of my homeland. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no problem, we'll bring the mountains to you. And so he built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And some scholars believe that as Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof of his palace, he's overlooking the Hanging Gardens of Babylon that he was responsible for. And as we see in these verses, he swells with pride. He talks about my majesty and my glory and and my power. And I can almost imagine him. He has his hands on his hips like this. And he's probably wearing a hat that says, I made Babylon great again. I made (laughs) Babylon great again. Sound familiar? (laughs) But this pride is short-lived. Because the second that these words come out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, we're told that God breaks in. And God says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, remember that dream you had a year ago? It's about ready to happen. Verse 33. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He goes crazy. He suffers from what the medical community here calls lycanthropy." Lycanthropy means wolf man. It's an actual medical disorder. There are some people today who are acting like animals because they actually believe they're animals. I read an account this past week of a scholar who visited a mental institution in Great Britain, and he saw that there was someone there who spent his days eating grass. He actually believed he was a cow. So Nebuchadnezzar is suffering from this medical disorder. And it's really interesting. If you look at other historical accounts, we see that near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, his son had to take over for him as king for a period of time. And usually that only happens when the king goes, gets sick. And so it may be that Nebuchadnezzar was suffering from the illness described here. There's every reason to believe that this is a true story. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy for a period of time, but it's only a period of time. After what this Bible, after, after what this chapter calls seven times, seven periods, likely referring to seven, war, seven years, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses. And when he comes to his senses, this Babylonian king, this pagan king, begins praising God in heaven. In fact, some of the most God-honoring, God-exalting language in the entire Bible comes on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. Look with me at verse 37, the last verse in this passage. This is Nebuchadnezzar in his own words. He writes both the beginning and the end of this chapter. Look what he says, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And some people believe that we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, that as a result of this experience, he came to a saving faith, In God. So that is the story of Daniel chapter 4. That's this weird, interesting story in Daniel chapter 4. But what in the world does that have to do with us, right? Why in the world would I bring you to this passage two, three days before the election? What does that have to do with what's going to happen this week? Well, there's something very interesting going on in this passage that I want to draw your attention to. There is a phrase that is repeated word for word three times in this passage. And that's very significant. You know, today, if you're writing a letter, or you're writing an email, and you want to emphasize something, what do you do? Well, today, we bold it, right? Or we italicize what we're going to say. Or maybe we underline it or do it in all caps. Well, they didn't do that in the times that the Old Testament was written. When the Old Testament was written, when they wanted to emphasize something, they didn't bold it. Instead, what they did is they repeated it. If you're reading your Old Testament and you see the same words and the same phrases repeated over and over and over again, pay attention to that because the author is trying to get something across. And there is one phrase that is repeated three times in this passage. We see it in verse 17, we see it in verse 25, and we see it in verse 32. And the phrase is this, we'll put it on the screen. Three times we find the following. The most highest sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The most highest sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. Three times we find that statement. And what that shows us is that that is the main point of Daniel chapter 4. More than anything else, that's what God wants us to learn from this chapter. And you can really summarize this whole phrase here in three words. What is Daniel 4 about? It's about the fact that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That is the lesson of Daniel chapter 4. And what does it mean to say that God is sovereign? Well, sovereign is kind of an old-fashioned word. It has a few meanings. But the way the Bible authors use it, it means this. To be sovereign is to be the ultimate source of all power, authority, and everything that exists. To be sovereign is to be the ultimate source of all power, authority, and everything that exists. Or you can even shorten that to say this. To be sovereign means to be in charge. To be sovereign means to be in control, and that is what this chapter is teaching us about Daniel, or about God rather, that he is in charge, that he is in control. And when you think about it, it makes sense that that would be what God would want the Israelite people of this time to know, right? Remember what I said the Israelites were going through at this time. It was a crazy time. It was a dark time. Their nation had been conquered. They were living as residents of a foreign country. And you can imagine the question and the doubts that that raised. What does it mean that our kingdom has been conquered? What does it mean that we're living under a pagan king? The chosen people of God living under a pagan king. Does that mean that God is no longer in charge? Does that mean that God has lost control? And what the story of Nebuchadnezzar is meant to show is absolutely not. It doesn't mean that what the story of Nebuchadnezzar is meant to show is that it doesn't matter who is in the palace. Our God is always on his throne. It doesn't matter who is in the palace. Our God is always on his throne because our God is sovereign because our God is in control. And how desperately we need to be reminded of that in our day and age. The first thing we're thanking God for in this series is we are thanking God for his sovereignty. We're thanking God for his sovereignty. I'm going to disappoint some of you right now if I haven't already. But I'm going to disappoint you because I know that when some of you heard that I was going to talk on the election this weekend, I know that there are some of you that were hoping that finally we would get political here. Finally, Friends Church is going to get political. And listen, I have no doubt that there are many pastors across America this weekend who are delivering very political messages to their congregations. And I can estimate probably what 60% of these messages are about. They're probably about the judgment that, that these pastors believe that God is bringing on America. That what we're experiencing right now is a result of the judgment of God. And listen, they may be right. God judges nations. Absolutely, He does. And it may be because of some of the decisions that we have made in the past few years in our nation, we are experiencing now the judgment of God. That that may be what is going on. But you know what? I can't say that for certain. And I don't want to waste your time this weekend speculating about what God may or may not be doing in our country. What I want to do is I want to talk about what I know for certain. And what I know for certain is this. No matter what happens on Tuesday, our God is sovereign. No matter what happens this week, our God is in control. Our God is in charge. And there is nothing, nothing that can happen this week. There is nothing that can happen in the next four years that can change that. Because as this passage very clearly tells us, no matter who is in the White House, our God is on his throne. No matter who is in the White House, our God is on his throne, and I, for one, feel as though it's about time that we Christians start acting like we believe that. It's about time we start acting like we believe that that's true. You know, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but my wife is. And occasionally my wife, over the last few weeks or so, she has showed me posts that people have written, some of them Christians about this election, about this political season. And every time she shows me a post, I'm reminded again of why canceling Facebook ranks up there with marrying my wife and becoming a pastor as the three greatest decisions I've ever made in this life. (laughs) Because men and women, i got to tell you, I'm saddened and sometimes I'm sickened by the level of hate and, and, and animosity and vitriol and anger that is being expressed by some Christians in regards to this political season. And I'm saddened by the degree of hopelessness that some Christians seem to be expressing over what's going to happen on Tuesday. And what that shows me is that deep down, I don't think we really believe what this book says about God's sovereignty. Deep down, we don't really believe what this book says about the fact that God is in control. Now, listen to me. From an earthly perspective, yes, we are living in crazy times. I mean, let's cut through the spin. Let's just get real for a second, okay? This Tuesday, we are going to elect to the highest office in our nation someone with serious character deficiencies. Both candidates have serious character deficiencies. This Tuesday... We are going to elect to the highest office in our nation someone with very questionable policy judgments. Both candidates have very questionable policy judgments. And if the earthly perspective were all that there was, then we should be scared, and there should be a degree of hopelessness. But I want to remind you again what this passage tells us about what's going to happen on Tuesday. Let's put the main point of that passage on the screen again. Listen to this. The most highest sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And listen to this last part. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. God gives the kingdoms of the earth to anyone he wishes. You know what that verse is saying? Whoever gets elected on Tuesday is ultimately God's choice to run our country. God is the determiner of the results on Tuesday. Now, that does not mean, men and women, that God approves of who's going to be elected on Tuesday. God has a history of using people like Nebuchadnezzar who are opposed to him to lead countries. And that's why it says this in verse 17. At the end of this phrase, in verse 17, there is tacked on this really interesting phrase. It says, and gives them to anyone he wishes. And then it says this, and sets over them the lowliest of people. God sets over kingdoms the lowliest of people. You know what that's saying? That's saying that sometimes God has a history of using despicable people to lead the nations of this earth, okay? So whoever gets elected on Tuesday is not necessarily who God approves of. But it is a person who is going to be used by God to achieve God's purposes, whatever they are. And no matter who sits in that White House in the next four years, And no matter who that person nominates to the Supreme Court, no matter what executive orders that they issue, no matter the long-term consequences of their policies, our God is still in control. Our God is still in charge. Because no matter who sits in the White House, our God is on his throne. And I believe, thank you. (laughs) And if we believe that, then we have to start acting like that. And what does that mean for us? Well, there are a few things that this book tells us that we need to do when we think about nations and governments and elections and so on. The first thing is this we vote. We vote. The Bible tells us that we are to affect change whenever we are given the opportunity. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that we sit on the couch all day. No, we affect change whenever we are given the opportunity. And we have something, a privilege in our day that Daniel could have never dreamed of. We have the ability to indicate who we want to lead us. And so we need to take advantage of that ability that we have. So we need to vote. Now, who do we vote for? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And listen, I can't tell you that. But what I can say is this. In this passage, we are told very clearly what God looks for in a leader. It's found in one verse. It's found in verse 27, this advice that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar. Look with me again at verse thirty-seven. Therefore, your, 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. And there we have it in one verse, what God looks for in a leader. He wants a leader, first of all, who does what is right which means that governs according to the word of God, and he wants a leader who is kind to the oppressed, stands on the side of the oppressed. And by the way, in our day and age, uh, the oppressed include babies growing inside of their mother's womb. And there you have it. That is what God looks for in a leader. And our responsibility as Christians is not to try and make history by voting for the first whoever to occupy the office of president. Our responsibility as Christians is to vote for the candidate that is most aligned with the Word of God. And so, as you look at the candidates that we have running, and if you look at verse 27 and you say there is a candidate that is most aligned with the Word of God, then great, you have your choice. If you can't get comfortable about well, either one of them uh, with prayer, you just can't get comfortable with it. Some of you may disagree with me on this, but I believe that's between you and God, and that's okay. But there are other issues that we vote on in this election. But no matter what, we have a responsibility to vote. That is first. Second is this. We pray. We pray. You don't have to pull this out now, though you can if you want, but there is this card that was in your bulletins when you walked in. And this card is a printout of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. And it's a passage in scripture where Paul tells us that we have a responsibility to pray for our leaders. Really what Paul says is we have a responsibility to pray for everyone, but then he singles out leaders. And I gave, this to you, I gave this to you because I want you to carry this around with you in the next couple of days. I want you to have this in your car as you drive to the polling place on Tuesday. I want you to hold this in your hands as you watch the election results come in on Tuesday night. Because once the votes are cast, This is our responsibility. We pray for our leaders. And this should go without saying, but I just don't know if it does anymore. When we pray for our leaders, we pray for them to do well. We pray for them to succeed. You know, there have been some Christians who have been disappointed in our current president. And as a result of that, some Christians have asked God that our president would fail. We don't do that. We ask God that our president would succeed. I encourage you this week to read Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, God writes a letter to people like Daniel. He writes a letter to Israelites who are living in Babylon. And this is what he says in verse 7. He says, seek the welfare of the city in which you live. He says, pray to God for it. Because if that city prospers, then you too will prosper. And basically what God is saying, you pray for the cities of Babylon. You pray that they do well. Because if they prosper, You will prosper too. And the same is true for us. If America prospers, if President Trump prospers, if President Clinton prospers, we also will prosper. You know, I find it interesting that when Daniel, when he found out that this dream was a judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, that what was his reaction? Did he say, finally, Nebuchadnezzar's going to fail, finally, he's coming, what's getting to him? No, what was Daniel's reaction? Do you remember? He was afraid. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this dream were about your enemies. Why would Nebuchadnezzar, or why would Daniel have that reaction? It's Because he actually liked Nebuchadnezzar. He had a warm affection for this pagan king. And Daniel knew that if Nebuchadnezzar did well, that he and his fellow Israelites would also do well. And as I was reading that, I, I couldn't help but think of this letter. I'm sure some of you saw it because it made its way around the internet the last couple of weeks. But it's a letter that is written by George H.W. Bush, the elder Bush, to Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton took office. And the first day that Bill Clinton walked into the Oval Office as President of the United States, he was greeted by this letter. And I don't know if you remember the 1992 election. It was a nasty election. There was a lot of mudslinging and a lot of name-calling. But President Bush put all of that aside, and this is what he said to Bill Clinton at the end of this letter, the man who beat him. He said this, you will be our, and the underlying our, you will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success is now our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. I really think we should all be writing a letter like this to President-elect Trump or President-elect Hillary on Wednesday morning. For the past eight years, I have prayed. For the next four years, I will pray. That if our president doesn't already, that he would come, he or she would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then I pray that they will begin governing according to the word of God. You know, Christians today talk about the need for a revival in our land. And I was thinking of it this past week. How amazing would it be if a revival began in the White House? How amazing would it be if the best spokesperson for Jesus became our president? Think that's crazy? Isn't that exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? We pray for our leaders. We vote, we pray. Thirdly, we trust. We trust. Several years ago, there was a woman who was flying across country in a commercial flight. In the middle of that flight, she had a a nightmare scenario for many of us. She suffered a heart attack midair. Immediately, the stewardess was alerted. She did what stewardess are trained to do. She went, and she went on the loudspeaker, and she said, are there any doctors who are on board? To everyone's amazement, 15 hands shot straight up. There were 15 doctors on board. And come to find out, all 15 of those doctors were heart specialists. All 15 of those doctors were cardiologists. You see, this woman suffered a heart attack on a plane that was headed to a city that was hosting a conference on heart disease. This woman suffered a heart attack in the best possible place imaginable. And as I read that story, I couldn't help but think, what a picture of the sovereignty of God. Our God is sovereign over the big things like nations and kingdoms and elections and presidents. But he's also sovereign over the little things like illnesses and where you get them. Probably my favorite verse on God's sovereignty is Matthew 10, 29. Jesus says this. He says, not even a sparrow can fall to the ground. Not even a bird can die apart from the sovereign will of God. We used to have this cat that would drop off dead birds on our front porch. And whenever she did, she had this smug look on her face. And I always wanted to say, wipe that smirk off of your face. You didn't do that. God did that. He's the one that made that possible. And he is. God is in control of what's going to happen Tuesday night in our nation, and he's in control of what's going to happen Thursday morning when you meet with your boss. He's in control of all of it. And as we've learned a couple of weeks ago, nothing can happen to you that can't make you more like Jesus. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that there aren't tough times ahead for our nation. But no matter what, God is on his throne. You know, I was was reading someone this past week, He said, the reason we become so obsessed with politics and the reason we put so much faith in our politicians is because ultimately we have such little trust in God. And that's why whenever a politician fails us, what does our nation do? Rather than go to God, they say, well, we need to find a new politician. We need to find someone who's going to do it right this time. But when you begin to trust in the sovereignty of God, it doesn't mean that you don't care about what's going on in our country. And it doesn't mean at times you don't have righteous anger about some of the decisions that are being made. That's okay. But it does mean that you're able to go into a week like this with a sense of peace and even gratitude. Because you know that no matter what happens, God is in charge. He is in control. Can I encourage you this week? Watch what you say to your coworkers, okay? Watch what you say in front of your children. Watch what you post on the internet about this election. Satan is loving how this election is tearing our churches and and Christians apart. Don't let him do that. Because our God is in control. Let me close with this. It's been a while since I closed a message with a hymn. But as I was studying for this one, there was a perfect one that came to my mind. It's an old one. Many of you are familiar with it, I'm sure. It's This Is My Father's World. And one of the stanzas of this hymn seems ready made for this weekend. This is what it says. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. Do you believe that? This week, let's live like that's true. Would you pray with me? Father, for centuries, God, your people have thanked you for your sovereignty. God, we tend to forget it, I think, in good times. But how desperately we need it in in, in the difficult times, God. You're sovereign over all of it. God, you are sovereign over what's going to happen in our nation this week. And God, you are sovereign over each individual issue, problem, circumstance that is going on in our lives. And we know that and we trust that. And God, you are working all things together for our good and for your purposes, Lord. Father, I pray for anybody in this place that right now is, is struggling with something, God. I pray that this message of, of your sovereignty, I pray that it would give them a sense of peace even amidst the storm, God, because we know that no matter what happens, Father, you are always on your throne. And God, I pray for our nation, Lord. I pray, God, that this nation that was founded on, on principles of, of your word, God, that we would get back to those fathers. I pray for our next president, whoever he or she is, God. I pray that they would have an encounter with you like Nebuchadnezzar did, God. God, that they would repent of their sins, Father. That they would come to a saving knowledge of you if they don't already. And they would begin to govern according to what is right, Lord. And they would become a spokesperson for you in our nation, Father. We know that's possible for you. So, God, we we pray for that. And, Father, we thank you that no matter what happens, Lord, you're in control, you're in charge. And God, I pray that you would help us each and every day to live as though that's true. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And it's in your, the name of your, 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 your son, Jesus, who is coming one day as king of this world that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.